1 Kings 12, 1. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all the Israelites had gone there to make him king. When Jeroboam, son of Nabat, heard this, he was still in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon. He returned from Egypt. So they sent for Jeroboam, and he and the whole assembly of Israel went to Rehoboam and said to him, Your father, that Solomon, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. Rehoboam answered, go away for three days, then come back to me. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam consulted the elders who had served his father Solomon during his lifetime. How would you advise me to answer these people, he asked. They replied, if today you will be a servant to these people and serve them and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants. But Rehoboam rejected the advice the elders gave him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him and were serving him. And we're going to stop right there. We're going to go on, and I encourage you to do that this week in your reading. Keep your Bibles open. Like I said, I think it will be especially helpful tonight. People of God, we're at a key juncture in the history of God's people in the Old Testament. Israel has had three kings so far, Saul, David, and Solomon. We learned at the beginning that this is, this is a new era, a new epoch in the Old Testament when the kings reigned. And we learned at the beginning of this era, back in the beginning of 1 Samuel, that the secret to the success of God's people and the secret of the success for the leaders of Israel would be in listening to and obeying and following the word of the Lord. That was the secret to success for God's people. But what we find as we move forward is a wholesale rejection of God's word. And the result would ultimately be, for the Israelites, the exile. That's a ways down the road yet, though. We're not there. A precursor to that is is a collapsing of three pillars of the kingdom of God in the Old Testament. A beginning of the collapsing and a crumbling of three pillars of God's kingdom in the Old Testament. And chapters 12 and 13 of 1 Kings show us just that. And we need to see this because the collapse or the beginning of the collapse that we find in these two chapters It's intimately related to our own lives as believers today, this side of the cross. They're on the other side, but it's intimately related to our lives as God's people today, these three pillars. The first pillar, we're going to go through each one, and that takes us through these two chapters. The first pillar of the kingdom of God in the Old Testament that we catch in these chapters, it's in chapter 12, 1 through 24, that section, and that is the kingship, the kingship, the kings. These verses, what they describe for us is how the kingdom of Israel, that was these 12 tribes, how it split in two, how it split in two. Uh, You remember that if you know a, a bit of biblical history, there were There was one unified kingdom, and then eventually they became two kingdoms, right? The ten northern tribes, Israel, the two southern Judah. We read 
just before our text that Rehoboam became king just after his father Solomon died. And then in our text, there's something very strange that happens. He goes up to Shechem to meet up with the Israelites who were thinking of making him king. So that's kind of, that's kind of bizarre if you think about it. How could that be if he was already king? Well, likely Judah, which was around Jerusalem, had already recognized him as king. And now Israel is thinking of doing this separately. And there was a precedent for this. Back in David's time already, when he was king, and I don't know if you knew this, but for two whole years during King David's reign, the ten northern tribes had a different king. It was the son of Saul. And later, David sort of unified them and became king overall. Now, so there was some precedent for this in Israel's history. Now, the northern tribes are trying to decide if they too should accept Rehoboam as their king. And the big issue is the tax burden that Solomon had put on them. So they ask his son, and we read that, will you lighten the load a little bit for us? Rehoboam consults the older advisors who said, hey, you want to be a good king, listen to the people, ease up. Rehoboam didn't like that, though, so he went to the younger advisors, his buddies, people his own age, and they said, no way, stand strong, be tough. And as the verses go on, he, we find out that he took their advice and he said to the people, you thought my dad was tough, wait till you see me. And he uses this very funny saying, and you're going to see it when you read it this week. He says, my pinky is thicker than your waist. No, he says, my pinky is thicker than his waist, Solomon's waist. Does that make sense now? The waist could have meant thumb or, or thigh, too. So kids, if you really want to be a tough guy on the playground, say to someone, hey, my pinky is thicker than your thumb. They might laugh at you, but it really meant something. That was a common saying at that time. So he's trying to be a tough guy. You thought Solomon was tough. The result, he should have listened to the elders. They were wiser. The result was that the ten tribes rejected Rehoboam's kingship, and they took this other guy, Jeroboam, as their king, and that split the kingdom in two. So there was Israel and Judah. What we see here is that Rehoboam failed the people. He failed the people he was supposed to lead. He should have turned back his father's policies. Solomon had started out okay in honoring God, but as his reign went on, he turned against God and he led the people away. And he did that in two ways especially. He allowed false gods in worship, and that was especially through his hundreds of wives and concubines. So he got soft on worshiping God, and he was off track through oppression of the people. Too high a burden, taking all their money. God's rulers were to be just and righteous, and he was not. Rehoboam made a very big mistake by not starting out his reign fresh. He could have done that. He could have condemned the sins of 
his father's later years and admitted the fault of his father's house, but he didn't. The people were at fault too. If you know what's going on in the Old Testament, they never should have rejected Rehoboam. Rehoboam was the legitimate heir of David, whether or not every policy of his was good. God, in the Old Testament, in the time of kings, he promised his blessing through David and his house. So what the people are doing in rejecting Rehoboam, they are actually rejecting not just a man, they are rejecting God. They're rejecting the promises of God and the covenant of God that would move through the house of David throughout history. So in the splitting of the kingdom, we see the start of the crumbling of this major pillar for God's people in that society at that time, the kingship. Verse 25 to the end of chapter 12 shows another area of decay. A second big pillar for the kingdom of God then was the priesthood. The priesthood. And the priesthood we see in these verses was crumbling too. And it's had to do with the worship of God's people. So Jeroboam is king over the ten tribes, right? He decides, you'll find it in these verses, where the sacrifices would go. He changes the place so his people, the ten tribes, wouldn't have to go up to Jerusalem. Because Rehoboam was king of Judah. Judah had Jerusalem. And Jeroboam thought, if they go down there to sacrifice... Rehoboam's going to start getting them to be his subjects. So he sets up two golden calves. Now we know this ain't going to be good, is it? He sets up two golden calves. I mean, it didn't go too well when Aaron did it at the foot of Mount Sinai. And now Jeroboam basically says the same thing that, that Aaron did at that time. Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. It's the exact same language and same foolishness. If it wasn't obvious enough, verse 30 in this chapter says, this thing became a sin. But we know, if we know a little bit of the Bible, even apart from that, that this was problematic. This was not a sin or a problem in the way that you and I might first think, though. You might think this is going in the face of which commandment? Number one, right? The first commandment, which says only worship God. But it wasn't. That wasn't the problem. Jeroboam was not having them worship false gods. He wanted them to worship the real God, only he was giving them some tools from the culture the calf was a symbol of fertility and power. He was giving them some helps from the culture to help them worship. But in the second commandment, the second commandment, God makes very clear that we are not to worship God with images like this. And we understand uh, that the second commandment is the worship commandment. It has to do with worship. And God says there, worship me as I tell you to worship. You don't worship me any old way that you might dream up. And that, of course, makes sense to us today, too, doesn't it? 
if we follow God's direction for our everyday life, if we follow God's direction for marriage, for sexuality, for our possessions, it makes sense we follow his direction for worship too, right? Of course it does. But, but Jeremiah, Jeroboam didn't listen to that. It was against the second commandment. And he further, he, so he's messing up with worship. He further messes up worship by installing his own priests. The Levites were to be priests. Basically, and this is more in, some of the details are in chapter 13, not the end of chapter 12, but he said, you know, anyone who wants to be a priest could become one. Plus, he changes the month of their special worship times from the seventh month to the eighth month. As verse 33 in chapter 12 emphasizes, it was a month of his own choosing. And you see, that summarizes the whole problem. Jeroboam was introducing his own way of worshiping God. Let's use these calves. Let's set them up where we want. Let's do it when we want. Let's set up whoever we want to be priests. Who cares that God gave us pretty clear direction on all this? Well, God cared. God did care. God does care. He says this thing became sin. So with the king leading the way in the second half of chapter 12, we see the beginning of the collapse of this second major pillar for God's people that was to be used to honor God in the Old Testament, the priesthood and worship. Finally, in chapter 13, we see a collapse that's related to the third major pillar for God's people in that time in history, and that's the prophetic office, the prophetic pillar. The prophets had the special job of proclaiming God's word to the people. Chapter 13 tells us a very interesting story. I'm going to try to be brief and clear, so track with me here. We read at the beginning of verse 1 that a man of God was sent out by the Lord. This man was sent out to condemn everything that Jeroboam was doing related to worship, the calves, and everything. Jeroboam doesn't like this. He stretches out his hand to have the prophet, prophet seized. But as he stretched it out, his hand got all shriveled up and it dried up. And he couldn't pull it back. It was stuck there, all shriveled and dried. It's kind of gross. He couldn't move it. He's scared. He's humbled. He takes back what he says about seizing the prophet of God. He's able to take his hand back. Then he asks the prophet over for dinner. He's trying to make up for his wickedness a little bit. The prophet says, no way. I'm not coming to your house for dinner. God specifically told me, I am to go here, give you this warning, and then I'm supposed to get out of here. I'm not supposed to eat any food, drink any water in this whole region because of how you guys are acting and living. So he leaves. He's going home. But then a very interesting thing happens as the chapter goes on. A certain older prophet comes up who had been living in, in Bethel, where he was, and Bethel was one of the areas the golden calf was set up. And that immediately you wonder, if there's an older prophet here, 
in Bethel, where all this stuff is going on, why didn't he say anything? And the fact is, he should have, but he didn't. He was afraid to speak out against all the problems. This older prophet was a failure of a prophet. So this guy meets up with the younger prophet, asks him to come to his house to eat. At first, the younger prophet is, no way am I doing that. I'm, I'm specifically not supposed to do that. But then the older prophet lies to him and says, but an angel of the Lord spoke to me, and I got to tell you what this angel said. But it's a total lie. The young prophet who had at first done the right thing, spoken to Jeroboam, now does the wrong thing. He listens to God's word the first time, but he doesn't carry through and listen to it this time. He goes with this older prophet. And why, why he doesn't the second time, we don't really know. It would just be a guess, but it could very well be that no one likes to bring a bad message, a message of warning, and maybe he bringing that message to Jeroboam, it could very well be that as he's going on, he's like, oh, maybe God changed his mind, you know? Maybe he revealed something to this other prophet that's different than this condemnation that I had to do. So he goes to eat. While he does, the Spirit of God comes upon this older guy and speaks a word to the younger prophet. And so it's God himself speaking to him. You have not listened to God, he says to the younger prophet. You're going to die. Your body won't be buried in the tomb of your fathers. And on the way home after dinner, this younger prophet gets killed by a lion. So kind of crazy stuff. The older prophet fails by not condemning the sin in his own region, and he fails Because he's a prophet of God, but he outright lies to this younger prophet. The younger prophet fails by not listening to the word of God about not eating or drinking with anyone in the region, no matter what. So the prophetic pillar, that third pillar for God's society in the Old Testament, is also crumbling. And all of this collapse and rejection of God and his word at all levels of society will lead to judgment. That's the last verse of chapter 13. This was the sin of the house of Jeroboam that led to its downfall and to its destruction from the face of the earth. And it didn't happen immediately here. It would happen down the road. So this terrible word of judgment, but the the fact is, and what we need to see even as we look at this kind of challenging part of scripture is that even in the judgment and the warnings of God, there is always grace. And that's why we must teach and preach and share everything in God's word, even the sort of depressing chapters like these, because there's grace and there's hope because This is an opportunity to turn to the Lord. The New Testament says Jesus will not turn away anyone who comes to him. There's grace in the warnings of the Bible, in other words. Without the warnings, we'd be lost and we'd be staying and stumbling in darkness. But God tells us this then and now so we can turn to him. Especially this is important because the life of the Christian today 
resembles this threefold office, the threefold pillars of prophet, priest, and king. There's a parallel. As we look at the sweep of the Bible and as we look at our calling, like the kings, we are called to rule. We're called to rule over creation as stewards of God. And if we're honest, we failed. You look at the state of the family in society, wars and rumors of war in our world, poverty, trouble around the world, environmental degradation to the extent that hundreds of millions, if not billions, can't have access to something as basic as clean water. There are a lot of signs that this pillar of our calling as servants of God to rule over creation as his servants. There are many signs that it's fractured, that it's broken. Like the priests, the Bible says, we're called to present our bodies as living sacrifices of thanks to God. But if we're honest, we have to admit that too often we've done what we want instead. We've used our minds, our bodies, our talents for ourselves And we haven't always given them fully to the Lord's service. That pillar doesn't look so good when we look at ourselves today either. Like the prophets, we're called to confess God's name. Like the prophets, we're called to uphold and listen to and live out and obey his word and to call others to do the same. We've done that far less perfectly than we ought. That pillar has crumbled and looks fractured too. So just like there are these very clear signs of collapse in our text, we can see that today too. When we look at our own personal lives, when we look at society, the collapse of the values of the Lord and rejection of God and His ways and His word. But thankfully... This story of the Bible doesn't end there. It doesn't end with the pillars on the brink of collapse. There's a lot more to the story we know. The Bible tells us of a perfect prophet, priest, and king who would come and he would succeed where all others before him and after him, you and me included, failed. Someone who would flawlessly reveal to us God's will as the perfect prophet. Someone who had set us free by the sacrifice of his body as the perfect priest. One who governs us by his word and spirit and guards us and keeps us forever in the freedom that he has won for us and bought for us on the cross and in his resurrection as the perfect king. And you know his name. I know you do tonight. His name is Jesus And because of him, it doesn't have to end in judgment for you and me, though we've done our own thing. There's hope when we turn to Jesus. He builds up and he recreates what people have messed up. Even this dour scripture text, even right here in these chapters, without having to jump to the New Testament, even in these verses, there are points for us of grace. There are signs of hope. There's a sign of hope in this young prophet getting killed by the lion, which at first doesn't seem to make sense. But something interesting happens as opposed to what normally happens when lions kill people in the Bible. 
He is mauled, but his body is not eaten up. So he's not eaten up. In fact, so he gets a burial. And his donkey is spared, which is kind of unusual for a lion. Those are keys. It's not utter and complete judgment. And we see something else early on in chapter 13. We're told that a son named Josiah would one day be born in the house of David. And we're told that that son, that future king, Josiah, would make things right. Well, the Bible tells us that Jesus was born of the house of David. And he was born later in history. Josiah, like Joshua, was an Old Testament Hebrew name for Jesus, which means Savior. So we're being pointed to Jesus. Though our lives, friends, if we're honest, though our lives are fractured and breaking, they're certainly not whole on their own. We have trouble and struggles. Though our lives are fractured and and breaking in numerous ways, Jesus the Savior patches them back together, makes our lives whole by his love through the work that he accomplished. Accept him, receive him, and he'll make your fractured life whole. And then you and I and all of us together can live as pillars in our world today as God calls us to. Pillars in our society that that need pillars of God, building the kingdom of God, pointing others to the king, to Jesus. Amen.